Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Judges chapter two. Judges chapter one gave us a short background on the political situation in the land of Canaan that reflects the time approaching Joshua's death. And then perhaps for the next decade or so, as those elders that were closest to Joshua took over leadership after he was buried. And in a nutshell, it was that the people of Israel failed at conquering Canaan. After the land was divided up, it became every tribe's duty to finish ridding itself of any remaining Canaanite tribes and pagan worship sanctuaries that were in their territory. And it's important to understand that the land that was divided up was based not on what was actually conquered or on merit, but rather by how God had assigned territories through lots that was supervised by Moses. And that allotment put the tribes in, in various regions uh, uh, of the promised land. North, south, near the Jordan, all the way over to the sea. Joshua fine-tuned all that with yet another round of allotments in a later ceremony whereby the relative size of each territory was adjusted to account for the population differences among the tribes. Bigger tribe, bigger territory. Now, even so, it also more meant that the assigned territory was the responsibility of each tribe to finish the job of conquest within their own particular land holding. And in the book of Joshua, we saw the Lord defeat his enemies using Yahshua, Joshua, as his earthly physical agent. Now, we're told of these great battles up north and down south in Canaan and how they were fought between vast armies employing hundreds of thousands of soldiers on each side. And we saw as the Lord decisively won those battles... And as a result, Israel won, meaning that they could now attain rest, sufficient rest, in that land that they could rightly now declare it as their own and they could settle there. However, after Joshua's victory and death, the battling wasn't going to end. Each tribe was obligated to continue the fight for his own immediate territory somewhat indefinitely. Now, Israel has been told repeatedly that if they'll be obedient to the Lord, then he will fight for them and victory will be theirs. If not, then the struggle is going to be particularly painful and full of difficulties and defeats. This is a great illustration, and I think probably a God-ordained pattern that foreshadows the battle that the army of another Yehoshua, who came 1,300 years later, would face. The one we know as Jesus of Nazareth, whose name indeed is Yehoshua, 
grammatically shortened to Yeshua, who would lead us to great victory if we will just follow him devotedly. Now, maybe this parallel is already starting to form in your minds. God, through Yeshua, fights at this enormous battle and defeats his great enemy, Satan, for our benefit. Yeshua is the physical human agent of this holy war. But God's the one who fights and leads to victory. Yeshua dies in the process and then each of his followers who are actually part of that victory must continue the fight each on his own turf which is our own lives. As this battle although already, already won in one sense incomplete in another sense is going to continue until a time preordained by Yehovah, but that time's unknown to men. Now, it's also interesting that both the major but incomplete victories of Joshua and then Jesus, Yahashua, and then the later Yahashua, will become complete both at the same moment. The Battle of Armageddon. All these daily turf wars and individual battles that we fight will finally be over because this holy war will finally be complete. The conquest for earth and for the eradication of evil will finally come to an end. Now, Judges chapter 1 went into some length to show that none of the tribes properly carried out um, their own individual turf wars. Some tribes won additional cities and surrounding others, but they weren't able to take others, other areas. Other tribes simply weren't able to gain an inch. Again, I see an illustration so perfectly parallel to the daily life of a believer that it has to be a God pattern. We will fight every day, and we're going to win some, and we're going to lose some. Some of us are going to be more determined and dedicated about it. Others of us will sadly put up a little resistance. But you know, in the end, none of us will have perfectly executed God's will for our redeemed lives. Further, we're told that the Israelites tended to make forced laborers out of the residents of areas that they did gain control over instead of deporting them, as the Lord had instructed. And in other cases, they simply went through a process of assimilation. And they blended with their neighbors. Now, all of this led to Israel sliding so rapidly into idolatry that it's truly breathtaking. You know, we tend to see everything from ancient times happening in slow motion as compared to modern times. But that's not at all necessarily so. There are some wicked actions that we can take, some turns down a dark road that's not God's will that are so drastic, so explosive in their consequences that negative changes begin to happen almost overnight. Israel's behavior and decision process at the end of Joshua's time and then during the era of the Shoftim was one such action. Now, I greatly fear that the unease that we believers feel today within this 
Western world in general and our wonderful nation in particular as we watch millions of our fellow citizens enthusiastically revel and moving rapidly towards a secular society which by the way is an inevitability is going to lead us to exactly a similar point as we will read over the next few months about the era of the Shoftim, the judges. And this eerie parallel between the time of the judges and today and our time is even amplified when we consider that it was a huge population of people of a false religion that Israel decided to appease rather than to extinguish as they had been ordered. They decided to engage them in diplomacy, in compromise, in tolerance. They decided to give up a little land to them. And in other instances, let them even live in Israeli territory. The Hebrews found ways to rationalize away God's instructions. These immutable principles that govern his universe. And forget even mankind's own history that proved at every turn that in compromise only evil wins. When at first it may seem like the peaceful and logical thing to do. Chapter 2 begins with God's only possible response to Israel's collective decision to follow their own way and abandon him. God's nature is such that he can do nothing else but employ righteous justice upon his own set-apart people when they rebel and sin against him. You know, I laugh, I cry, I turn red with anger, and then I get pale with worry when I hear some of our most respected Christian leaders proudly tell the flock that the days of God's justice upon his own people are over. Have we not all heard that? Time and time again. Well, if that's true, then we have no choice but to drop our assertion that God never changes. We are basically told that we indeed have purchased our heavenly fire insurance policies at salvation. And that we are exempt from expecting discipline and punishment when we freely rebel and trespass against our Lord. That's not true. Okay. Nowhere in the Old or New Testaments is that said. And such license to sin, so long as we're redeemed, is so against every God pattern that it boggles the mind how such a doctrine God ever got formed. And it's terribly dangerous to the spiritual health of every believer and the body of Messiah in general. You know, the people of Israel during the time of the judges adopted that exact attitude. Hey, we're the Lord's redeemed people. We've been given rest in our own land. The Father would never do anything but bless His own people, right? They were about to find out that if God does not administer his justice, then he's not truly holy. And as we have all learned, the Lord is so perfectly holy 
that he will destroy the whole universe and everything in it to protect that holiness if he has to. Okay. Such is his unmatched divine purity and righteousness and the demands that he places upon all who freely choose to call upon his saving name. Let's read Judges chapter 2 together. Judges chapter 2, page 271 in the complete Jewish Bible. Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of Adonai came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you to the land I swore to your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. You, for your part, are not to make any covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but must tear down their altars. However, you paid no attention to what I said. What is this you have done? This is why I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will be on your flanks and their gods will become a snare for you. Now, when the angel of Adonai spoke those words to all the people of Israel, they began crying and wailing at the top of their voices. So they called the name of that place Bochim and sacrificed there to Adonai. When Yahushua had sent the people away, the people of Israel had gone each one to his assigned property in order to take possession of the land. The people served Adonai throughout Yahushua's life, throughout the lives of all the older men who had outlived Joshua and who had seen all the great work of Adonai which he had done for Israel. And when Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Adonai, died, he was 110 years old. And they buried him near the boundary of his property in Timnath, Heres and the hills of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. When that entire generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation that knew neither Adonai nor the work he had done for Israel. Then the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective and served the Baalim, the Baals. They abandoned Adonai, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods selected from among the gods of the peoples around them and worshipped them this made Adonai angry they abandoned Adonai and served Baal and the Ashtaroth the anger of Adonai blazed against Israel and he handed them over to the pillagers who plundered them to their enemies all around them so that they could no longer resist their enemies whenever they launched an attack the power of Adonai was against them so that things turned out badly just as Adonai had said would happen and had sworn it to them. They were in dire distress. But then, Adonai raised up judges who rescued them from the power of those who were plundering them. Yet, they did not pay attention to their judges, but made whores of themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the path on which their ancestors had walked, the way of obeying Adonai's mitzvot, commands. They failed to do this. Now, when Adonai raised up judges for them, Adonai was with the judge and delivered them from the hands of their enemies throughout the lifetime of the judge. For Adonai was moved to pity by their groaning under those oppressing and crushing them. But after the judge died, they would relapse into worse behavior than that of their ancestors. Following other gods to serve and worship them, they abandoned none of their practices or stubborn ways. 
So the anger of Adonai blazed against Israel. He said, because this nation violates my covenant, which I ordered their fathers to obey, and they don't pay attention to what I say, in the future, I will not expel ahead of them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. This is how I will test Israel to see whether or not they will keep the way of Adonai, living according to it as their ancestors did. So Adonai allowed those nations to remain where they were without quickly driving them out. He did not hand them over to Joshua. You know, there's so much here, and even though it might not seem so, and I don't want to shortchange it, so we're going to spend all of this week and then next week as well only on this one chapter. Now be aware that you just might be surprised at how personal and meddling the words of this chapter might be for every one of us. Now right out of the chute we get the words now the angel of the Lord. The Hebrew is the Malach of Yehovah. As, and as we've discussed in prior lessons, Malach does not mean angel. It means messenger. It's only that in certain contexts it is taken to mean that the messenger is an angel, a spirit being. Now, interestingly, in many places in the Bible we run across this term. And Jewish scholars and rabbis insist that the one here in particular is actually a human messenger. A prophet that's being referred to here in Judges chapter 2. And that is one way around the problem that Christianity also struggles with in coming to grips with the identity of the angel of the Lord. The problem is what or who is the angel, the Malach, of the Lord. Well, here in Judges 2.1, many of the greatest Hebrew sages say that this is just a human prophet who has journeyed from Gilgal to deliver a message from God. And they assume this because if this is a spirit being, then one has the spirit being speaking in the first person. He says, I and if that's the case, then it's pretty hard to deny that the spirit being is identifying himself as God. That's not something that Judaism generally accounts for. However, it is common for a prophet to speak the actual words from God, like reading a prepared speech and using the word I. The difference is that the prophet always prefaces those words with some sort of I'm about to present to you a message from God. And certainly that's not the case here. Now Christianity on the other hand has adopted the concept of the Trinity whereby God can manifest himself as God in as many as three ways. Therefore to have a spirit being speak as I the Lord and yet not necessarily be identified as God the Father, still leaves two other choices. The Holy Spirit and the Son, Yeshua. 
Now, with this doctrine of the Trinity, the only argument then becomes which of the Trinity is the angel of the Lord? And the usual answer is that it's the Son. Now, I have to tell you that even if we have a nice selection of three different square pegs in the Trinity, we're still trying to pound them into a round hole called the angel of the Lord. Okay. I, I believe absolutely that while in the era of Yeshua we indeed saw recorded primarily the workings of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all who are one, Echad, God, I am skeptical that those are the only possible manifestations of Jehovah. That he is limited to those alone, making those three his total and complete essence is not something that's entirely apparent. Okay. There is nothing scripturally that says that God is three in one and only three in one. There is the Shekinah, for instance, that's spoken of that doesn't fit the description of any of those three. There is the angel of the Lord that we're talking about that presents another variation. Recall that physical apparition that appeared to Abraham and spoke and ate with him. Another that physically wrestled with Jacob. And there are some other possibilities as well. And they are all in some mysterious ways attached to God and said to be God. And I believe every one of them. Now, whether, wherever you may fall in this debate, in any case, there is utterly no doubt that the angel of the Lord is a spirit being right, and not a man by the straightforward context of Judges chapter 2. I think in the long run, we're better off to accept that the angel of the Lord is a direct manifestation of Jehovah and be satisfied to leave it there. Okay, rather than attempting to rationalize it with any doctrine, Jewish or Christian. And when it comes to the spirit world, you know we are so limited in our insight, in our ability to comprehend it, to even find words that are necessarily of this physical world to describe and illustrate something from the spiritual world. It's a hard task. Well, anyway, the angel of the Lord then proceeds to speak to the people of Israel in a place identified as Bochim. Now, we don't really know where this place is. And in reality, Bochim isn't a proper name or a title. It simply means weepers, criers, people crying. And in a couple of verses, we're going to see that it's because weeping was Israel's collective reaction to the words of the angel of the Lord. Now, verse 1 just bursts forth with additional momentous words from God. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. What did God just say? I will never, never, never break the covenant that I have established with you, Israel. He did not say, if you'll break the covenant, then I'll break the covenant. He did not say that under the right circumstances, he'll break the covenant. Compare that to Matthew 5, 17 and 18. When God's son says, don't think that I've come to abolish the 
Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a youth or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that's happened, that must happen, has happened. All he's done is verify what God said here. I will never break the covenant. Should we have expected Christ to say, I came to break the covenant? Don't think so. So God says he'll not break the covenant. And later Yeshua says he's not going to break the covenant. The angel of the Lord brings the good news to Israel that despite the difficulties and chastisement from God that may be coming their way, Israel and no one else present or future for that matter is ever to interpret that what's about to happen to Israel is the Lord making a decision to break the covenants that he's made forever with them. Now while here the direct reference is actually to the covenant of Moses, it inherently also includes the covenant of Abraham because the covenant of Moses is based on the covenant of Abraham. Just like the new covenant is based on the old. Now, this should come as no surprise that 1,300 years later, the word of the Lord, Yeshua, as he is giving his famous oracle on a hilltop overlooking the Sea of Galilee, also tells whoever were present and listening, whoever will listen, that despite what may be coming, don't ever interpret it to mean that the Lord has made a decision to break the covenants he's made with Israel. And then he specifically refers, Jesus does, to the covenant of Moses, the law, the Torah, and then the prophets, meaning that all the promises will happen. You know, isn't it the most amazing thing that the vast majority of the body of Messiah today still insists that breaking the covenants is exactly what the Lord did. Amazes me. I mean, we, we can twist a phrase any way we like it, but abolishing, ending, revoking, replacing are all just another way of saying breaking. And as I said at the outset today, there's so much here. So let's summarize and put into some kind of format exactly what it is that the angel of the Lord told Israel and the rationale behind it. Now, first, the Lord reminds Israel just what he's done for them. He's rescued them from Egypt, brought them to the land that he promised to Abraham so long ago. And he has fought ahead of Israel, won, and now Israel can be at rest in their own land. Yet, they're not a complete rest because they did not fully obey God's commands to rid the land of the Canaanites. Still, the Lord says, despite this disobedience, he is not going to break the covenant he's made with Israel, implying that Israel certainly deserves the covenant to be revoked. But because of his own holy nature, his promise, he's not going to do it. Now, they can walk away from that covenant and they did. They can disassociate themselves from the covenant community. And many did. 
and therefore no longer be under that covenant community's covenant, and many did, but the covenant remains intact. Second, we're reminded that the covenant of Moses is a conditional covenant. Now, the condition, though, is not covenant or no covenant. The condition is that Israel must be faithful and obedient to Jehovah if Israel can expect to have fruitfulness and rest in Canaan or even to remain there. It's about the land. That faithfulness and obedience was generally wrapped up in the Lord's demand that Israel make no covenants, peace treaties, political agreements with the Canaanites and that Israel should destroy all of their pagan idols and places of worship that dotted the land. Now, next, the Lord points his heavenly digit at Israel and says, you haven't done this. In other words, God accuses the Hebrews of blatantly not doing the very things he said were mandatory and would have dire consequences if Israel did not obey. Now, after this accusation and conviction, the father issues his judgment upon them. He says, okay, I'll not drive out the Canaanites from before you. Whereas when Joshua was alive, Jehovah led the battles. He ensured the victories. Now he says he's going to back away. And Israel, you're on your own. The result of this, says God, is that the enemy is going to stay rooted in that land and they're going to be a snare and a thorn for you. Israel's response to the startling oracle and judgment was that it says that they wept bitter tears and they began wailing loudly over what they had done and what it would mean for their present and future. That's why the place was given the name of Bochim, the place of weepers. Well, from verses 6 through 10, we have essentially a repeat of Joshua chapter 24. The editor of this book of Judges obviously is making the direct link between the time of Joshua and the time of the Judges. And it's explained that after the covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, whereby all agreed that they would abide in the Mosaic Covenant, Joshua dismissed the people to go home to what was now their own land, given to them as a gift from God. And it is stated that Yahashua and his staff were able and obedient followers of the Lord God, and that Joshua lived to the ripe old age of 110 years and was given the privilege of being buried on his own property in the promised land in very close proximity to his ancestors. Now let me take a momentary detour. Verse 9 has a small and I think very interesting oddity that I think provides a kind of opportune insight into something that I've discussed with you before. Ancient copyist errors in the Bible. Now, look at verse 9 in chapter 2. It speaks of this place that Joshua owned as his personal landholding and where he was buried. And in every version that I've investigated, and maybe some of you will have something different, 
It says that the name of the place was Timnat Heres. H-E-R-E-S. Timnat Heres. But now, if you go back and look at Joshua 19.50, it says, According to Adonai's order, they gave him the city he had asked for, Timnat Sarah. So he built the city and lived in it. Notice in Judges, it is called Timnat Heres. In Joshua, Timnat Serah. Two different names for the same place. But there, this isn't really the case. More correctly, transliterated to English in Judges, it should say Timnat Heres with a CH, not with an H. The name in Judges is actually a minor copyist error. From many centuries ago, that has been perpetuated. And it's resulted in all sorts of inventive ways to try and find a meaning for the word heres. Uh, in the end, there's no such word. But there's been no lack of spe- speculation and assignment of various meanings, not like the way the word Shaddai has been treated for centuries. Basically, the problem is that the consonants that form the second half of the name of the place of Joshua's private land somehow got reversed. Notice in Hebrew, Serah is Samech Resh Het. Heret is Het Resh Samech. Exactly reversed. The Hebrew alphabet essentially doesn't have vowels. So, one simply has to infer how to pronounce a Hebrew word because it's written only with consonants and no vowels. Now, remember that in ancient times, every scroll had to be handwritten. So, copyist errors of spelling were fairly common. One of the methods of checking script was that, if you'll recall, every letter has a number attached to it. So they would take a row of characters or a paragraph of characters and they would add up all the numbers and then they would do it after they copied it. And if the amount, what it all added up to wasn't the same, they knew there was an error. But when all you've done is reverse, do this reversal, numbers add up to be the same. So they missed it. Well, these five verses ends with a phrase that we've heard so many times up to this point when it's written that this entire generation, this second generation of the Exodus, was gathered to their ancestors. Now here we have that phrase that described how it was that even the Hebrew people looked upon death at that time. It was with a foundation of ancestor worship in mind. They would go to their graves and some essence of them would commune in some unknown way with their ancestors. Of course, this was only possible in their minds because those ancestors, and they're mainly the patriarchs we're talking about here, were buried in the same locale, Canaan. And thus, they weren't separated from them by spiritual, territorial boundaries. And we're told... 
that a new generation arose after Joshua. One that didn't know Yehovah or know the work he had done on Israel's behalf. You know, we're literally talking about the passing of only one generation since Joshua died. One. In only a couple of decades, the mixing with the Canaanites had so perverted the Israelites that they were quite familiar with Baal and Ashtoreth, but they knew almost nothing of Jehovah. To say that they didn't know of what God had done for them didn't mean that they were ignorant and uninformed. It means that they had judged it as all irrelevant to their lives. They had no gratitude to those who came before them and fought to give them the life that they now took for granted. Syncretism had made the God of Israel barely a second thought for them. Every time we have a Veterans Day or Memorial Day or Fourth of July and I see those proud and wrinkled men and how very few of them there are remaining handing out poppies or flag pins and malls and out in front of Walmart and street corners some of them wearing parts of their well-worn uniforms or perhaps their service medals from World War II I get, I get concerned I watch as young men and women pass them by without a glance a generation of people who have no idea what war really is, what sacrifice really is, people who have no concept or interest that millions gave their lives for the good and free life they now live. I listen to them. I overhear them as they naively pontificate about how this time in our modern and progressive era, unlike all the other times in history, this time, Instead of fighting wars, we'll be able to have civilized talks with our enemies who swear to destroy us. And with the right words from the right men at the right time, they'll listen. This time, if we appease them just a little bit more, if we try just a little harder, if we can just understand their side of it a little bit better, They'll be satisfied and not bother us anymore. This time. You know, I cringe as I listen to Meet the Press and these presidential debates and I hear the men who want to lead us tell us that the current state of mankind is now like any other. And because men are so inherently good and our knowledge is so great we can come together in world peace if we just determined as humans to do it. That all men just want the same things and to label anyone as evil, even a vicious Muslim leader who openly speaks of his desire to lay Israel waste and rule the world and kill everybody who resists the will of Allah, well, that person's just an unintelligent, hateful, counterproductive human because after all, who could be so arrogant as to think that he's the one who can identify the line between evil and good? 
See, this prevalent and popular mindset has developed a mere 60 years after 100 million people died as either victims or from fighting to save the world from the greatest evil we have known up to this point in mankind's history. But now, after only six decades, it all counts as but meaningless history relevant only for old people and recorded in industry history books. So you know it ought to be awfully easy for us, particularly those of us who are baby boomers, especially, to identify with what's being described here in the second chapter of Judges, whereby in this remarkably short period of time, after the conquest of Canaan, and after God freed Israel from Egypt, all this has suddenly become old news to the very people who are benefiting from it the most. Verse 12, I think, is one of the saddest in the book of Judges, maybe the whole Bible. It says this, Judges 2.12, They abandoned Adonai, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. And they selected from among the gods of the peoples around them and worshipped them. And this made Adonai angry. There's no hiding the truth. Worshipping other gods, Israel has abandoned Yahweh, Jehovah, God Almighty. And as we're going to see in coming chapters, the amazing thing is, Israel didn't think they had abandoned him. Most still held a place in their worship of the divine for Jehovah, however small it might have been. But indeed, most in worshipped some combination of Baal and Jehovah. And by this, they would insist and insist, we've not abandoned you. But there in our standard of what abandonment amounts to doesn't matter. It's the Lord's standard that he will use as a measure and most of Israel didn't measure up. I wonder if we measure up. I told you this would get personal. The gods who surrounded Israel went by many names. Most only being the same name translated into the local language. Remember, to say Canaanite God was just a general term meaning the gods of the various tribes and nations who lived within the rough borders of the former land of Canaan. Baal became Hadad in Syrian to the north. Dagon was Philistine for El in the south and the west. Astarte was Sidonian, that is the residence of Sidon. All right, for Ashtoreth up in the northeast. Oestre was Anglo-Saxon for Ashtoreth. Easter was English for Ashtoreth. Mot was the Assyrian god of the underworld. Yom equal to the Neptune of the god of the sea. On and on it went. But every one of these names of the gods 
were of the same mystery Babylon pantheon of gods that arose from Nimrod's era. Didn't matter what their name was. What was Jehovah's reaction? He became angry. The words to follow other gods was really much more literal than we typically think about it. You see, in those days, and still in many cultures today, a god image would be held up and carried by priests or servants or maybe a king who served that god and then a procession of followers and worshippers would march behind it. A parade of sorts was held to honor that god as they took his image to or from his or her temple. So when the Bible speaks of following other gods, it brought a very vivid and real picture to the minds of those who wrote and read these verses in earlier times. Perhaps a more modern illustration is of an evil Pied Piper who enchants all those who pay attention to him and he leads them, much to their surprise, off a cliff and into destruction. Next week we're going to begin by discussing a little more about God's reaction to Israel's apostasy.